0: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world. With Uli Baer. What are the philosophical underpinnings of free speech? Professor Jay Wallace of the University of California at Berkeley's Department of Philosophy served on the Chancellor's Commission for Free Speech. He thought hard and long and consulted many, many people to come up with some guidelines of how universities can do better. Thank you. Today I'm here with Jay Wallace, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley. You're also the Judy Chandler Webb Distinguished Chair of Innovative Teaching and Research, correct?
1: Yes, that's right. So
0: we're sitting in in Moses Hall here, which Mm -hmm. I presume is not named after the a biblical figure <laughs> but I don't know.
1: <laughs> uh, no it's not. It's moved, it's named after I think a professor of political science at the university. Right. Who had some who, who actually has some from the contemporary perspective questionable associations with, you know, imperialism.
0: Oh really? looking back. It's so one possible. of those names that maybe will be changed it's in the future possible. or debated. Okay. Yeah, it's possible. Yes. And today is a big day at at Berkeley, so it's move in day yeah. for about seven thousand five hundred new students, freshmen. I actually just dropped off my own son in a dorm. So it's quite an exciting day, and having about 7,000 new students, they are all aware, I think, they, most of them have gone to high school, maybe a few are transferring in from later stages in life, they know that their the debates about free speech, mm. they are on social media, they are yes. definitely exposed to all sorts of opinions. And I think a lot of people want to get to the the minds of these 7,500 people, right? Mm -hmm. Not just to shape them to develop their own ideas, but also to influence them and give them something to think about and maybe Mm -hmm. also sort of, let's say, what we wouldn't do in the university, make them think the way we think. So Mm -hmm. as a philosophy professor, how would you start a conversation to not 7,500, but two freshmen coming to Berkeley who've been aware of these debates, have been aware of what happened over the last year and... We'll get to your role, sort of, in mm-hmm. sort of helping the university think through it. But how much you start a conversation with 18-year-olds who know there's a big challenge?
1: Yeah,
0: and you're going to be in the middle of it. So right. I walk through Sprawl Plaza. They're all walking through there right now, yes. and they know that this was the site of these controversies a year ago.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, that's a really good question. You know, I think the free speech environment for the current generation of college students is completely different from what it was for the generation back in the '60s and '70s. And, the heyday of the free speech movement at Berkeley. I mean, social media and the availability of unlimited, costless speech online right. has it, it creates a completely different context for thinking about free speech and thinking about its, its purpose and rationale and justification and, and effects um, in some ways. And I, and, and our students are, are very savvy about that. It's an interesting feature of the contemporary kind of environment they're growing up in that it gives the lie to some of the traditional liberal pieties about free speech. I mean, the idea that speech, the best way to counter questionable speech is with more speech.
0: Which is probably a piety that everybody would like to share, it, not just liberals. A, we would all, exactly. conservative or liberal, like to believe but that. But you look
1: what goes on online or in the comment yeah, section, of yeah. unmoderated comment sections on newspapers and so on, and it's, it's just a kind of cesspool of invective and disinformation and, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all obvious that, that more speech is, is always better speech or that more speech is conducive to discovery of the truth.
0: That, and this would be one thing they're coming to the university for, to actually, for example, learn how to discover the truth or respect facts yeah. or knowledge. And
1: I think so, yeah. I think that's one of the interesting things for these students. They, they come into the university from a context where they're bombarded with unlimited free speech online and on social media. And my own sense with some of my students is that they have a particularly keen appreciation for the kind of curated context of debate and discussion that a university represents,
0: right? Where that's what they're looking for. That's what really they're, well, they're, they're, they pure. can
1: see that there's value that you get from a, a speech context which is curated. And so, I mean, that's what our classrooms are. They're not First right. Amendment zones. You're not allowed to just say anything. Professor and the graduate student instructors heavily moderate the discussion, but in order to keep things on track and to ensure that we have an open debate that, that is really focused and conducive to discovery
0: and truth and so on. So there's a goal and the, the students know that they're enrolling here, they applied yeah. a really, really you know, competitive school to get in. Yeah. To be in the classroom where not just anybody can go off on any topic. But if you're teaching philosophy and I want to come in and discuss the NBA. Or fantasy right. football you're gonna tell me this is not the space this to do this is it, not the
1: place to do that and right. i
0: cannot invoke the first amendment yeah. so that's actually that's what they want that's the one of the main roles of the university yeah. right to sort of say this right. is what you call curated which we would call curated for a good purpose yes. right this is the mission and the yeah. intent of the university and can we talk a little bit about the conditions for that situation which would be different from mm-hmm. sprawl plaza from sure. the open areas yeah. but in a classroom, you want to create some conditions for conversations. And if I come up with a fantasy football metaphor in your philosophy class, yeah. you can let me go on for a sentence or two, because maybe I can turn sure. this into a useful example. Yeah. You're going to be skeptical, probably. I'm not a trained philosopher, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> after three sentences, you're going to stop me and say, this is really if not If it's going not any-.
1: going anywhere, I'm going to say, look, you're wasting... Our- and where is it, it
0: exactly. yeah. where is it supposed to go? Exactly. Where is it right. supposed to go? If I say, well, well no, Professor Walz, I want to explain something to you that you yeah. don't even know yet. Right. Brand new idea. I'm increasing yeah. the viewpoint diversity here.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a good question. You know, I mean, it, it's got to be focused to engage with the subject matter that's under discussion in the course, and it's got to, um, you know, reflect some basic familiarity with the the texts and the issues that were the texts that we're discussing and the, and the issues that are the focus, uh, in some sense. So, you know, one thing you're you're looking for when you're trying to moderate one of these discussions as a, as an instructor is just to make sure it's you know. It's on track. It doesn't reflect uh, you know, basic ignorance of the text that's under discussion. It's going to be, you know, it, it has at least a chance of being a constructive contribution. To
0: and it. how open-ended is this if it's a search for, it's probably not the truth with a capital T, yeah. the one absolute truth, but it's yeah. directed in a way. There's it's directed,
1: sure, that's right. You know, I think in philosophy there is no single truth that we're looking for. We're looking for thoughtful perspectives on the issues that are, you know, at the center of our investigation, I think some of the views that people express are more plausible than others, but it's it's a different kind of inquiry from in, in some, some other parts of the. So, inquiry.
0: if we use the classroom setting as a kind of example, how speech is productively regulated or yes. curated for yeah. a purpose, we're yes. not saying it's not infringing anybody's rights. Right, it's not even a legal conversation to say the conditions are it should contribute to a general understanding that this, this example or this these facts or this mm-hmm. material or this argument will contribute. It's based on something. I yeah. didn't just make it up. There are also other conditions. When people come into your classroom, yes. how do you treat them to actually participate in this conversation?
1: Right. Uh, well, the, you're right. There are other conditions. Um, you know, It's kind of basic ground rule that we're, we want to foster, um, not just constructive, but also respectful debate. That doesn't deliberately try to exclude members of our, our classroom communities from participating in the discussion. so invective, ad hominem, derogatory comments just have no place in the, in the classroom.
0: Right. If we don't get to even this kind of language, yet invective, which probably yeah. most reasonable people would say, of course I couldn't call right. anybody a name, but if I said, well, you know, I'd, I know what you're saying, but as you belong to a group that really doesn't have that much sort of to contribute to this kind of topic. Yeah. So an assumption that had been, you know, kind of standard yeah. doctrine in Western thought that women cannot really don't have the capacity for abstract reasoning. Yeah. You cannot do that in a classroom, no, right? I couldn't sure, say, so, yeah. so you are a female student and really not. That. You shouldn't contribute at this moment because of group belonging. Yes, This condition in the university, it's, yeah. it's an assumption that everybody makes walking into a classroom. It right?
1: is, absolutely. Yeah. And, it's, and it reflects one of the values around which the contemporary university is organized. Which is a you know a commitment to respectful but inclusive discourse uh, that takes seriously right. each of the you know participants um, and you know is open to assessing them based on the merits of the you know what they say right, rather right. than the perspective from which they said. so
0: if the terms are respectful inclusive would you go so far that equality is a category that one can use here which is mm-hmm. and in your work I read you know your article on hypocrisy which I was quite interested in because you make an assumption and you say. Yeah. In this philosophical argument about democracy, yeah. that actually you have to treat people and consider that they have equal social standing. Yeah, uh, that's a condition that, in some ways, you say that it's an otherwise moral. Moral philosophy doesn't work at all if you yeah. don't make that assumption.
1: That's a basic kind of condition
0: of it's yeah, a, morality. It's a, right. it's a basic condition of it's morality kind itself. Kind of
1: what morality is about is doing justice to the fact that each of us is, you know, equally important. Um, right, uh, our interests matter equally. In some sense, and that, that you know that has some expression in the classroom as well. Having said that, the classroom is a special a special context, and you know academics are constantly making discriminations between students, right. uh, which don't involve, you know, treating them equally in terms of the outcomes, of assessment exercises, and things like that. They're they're judging who who has the better arguments, who writes
0: the most right. effective
1: paper, and so on. I um, think this
0: is an important thing to parse for a moment, to say there's yes. an assumption of equality, meaning yes. everybody walks into the room and you yeah. have the right of equal participation regardless of who you are, what your background is, yeah. etc. But nonetheless, it's a competitive environment where your mm-hmm. opinion may matter more may, be more, may be considered more correct, more valuable, and mm-hmm. therefore it will actually trump or, or do another argument. So there's a kind of yeah. an, a principle of equality at work which does not mean there's sameness.
1: Exactly, yes, that's right. There's still discrimination, but 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 you're right. Everyone should have an equal chance to contribute to the discussion and to participate and to make their perspective heard right. or to make their argument if we're, if we're having an informal discussion. You know, with the preview though, so that if it's not going anywhere or proves to be not to the point right. or based on, you know, lack of familiarity with the text that everyone else is discussing, then right. they're going to be cut off at a certain right. point, politely, I hope.
0: But and on the, the merits of the argument yeah, and the not on who argument. they are. Absolutely, it's and, not a
1: question about who they
0: are. And right. if we go back to, say, you said you make equality into a kind of precondition or a kind of non-negotiable condition yeah. of moral philosophy. You say yeah. without that it doesn't really make sense to do moral philosophy. I mean, you could do it probably, right? You do moral philosophy only for some people. <laughs>
1: you could, you could. but <laughs> You I, couldn't I, call I, it moral philosophy. You know, I, I do think the kind of a late modern conception of morality <laughs> yeah. is, a, is a set of requirements. That reflect the fact that we inhabit a world with other people whose interests. Right, a pluralistic are, world which is complicated. Yeah, that's right. it's complicated, but everyone's interests matter equally, right. and that makes some demands right. on us um, that we have to take seriously in our deliberations right. about what to
0: do. Why I'm asking about this term equality yes. so much, which is different from respect, yeah. kind of, or treating people, you know, respectfully and. Um, recognition of their dignities because equality happens to be a legal concept for the yes. university as well. It's mandated by law. Yep. It's not we can choose to run universities and right. receive federal funding and not treat people equally. Yes. While the university, as we said, have the right to discriminate based on what people say. Mm-hmm. It's not the right answer. Yeah, You're not going to say it again. You're going to get a low grade yeah. or even yeah. fail and all that. There are sorts of con- right. con- you know, considerations or consequences. So equality is a legal concept. And equality is also, I think, touches on the political debates about free speech in my mm-hmm. view mm-hmm. and I'm actually quite interested in where the argument of inequality enters because a lot of the conversations that have been had mm-hmm. across the country are about students about their feelings about yes. being sensitive about being offended yeah. about not tolerating some viewpoint yeah all of that language to me and I'm curious, as a philosopher, mm-hmm. where we put that language sounds to me it's a language of psychology, of emotions, of mm-hmm. affect. Mm-hmm. Equality is not that language. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you, and you were part of the commission on free speech for the University of California, you co-chaired it, actually. Yes. It's a really, really, really powerful report. I read the report. You issued some kind of recommendations how universities mm-hmm. could navigate this complicated space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, equality doesn't come up there. It's actually yes. about tolerance and about sort of difficult speech and counter yeah. speech and all that. I'm kind of curious w- if this classroom conversation we just had yes. has a bearing on the larger university. Uh,
1: I think it does have a bearing, though I wouldn't have put it in terms of equality myself. But yeah. I, I think that's, a, that's still a helpful rubric and an important value to, to bring to bear to reflections about free speech and what a free speech regime looks like within the broader you know, context of a university community i mean you you connected questions of legal questions of equality with these kind of psychologizing right. terms that people use to to characterize some of the effects of hateful right. speech and invective of the sort that characterizes a lot of the most controversial contemporary political discourse and so on you know i think i think you have a point that I, you know i think a lot of people are concerned that speech especially reflecting on the first amendment absolutism in the united states and the idea that hate speech is protected speech under the First Amendment. You know, a lot of people are rightly concerned that, you know, speech is a as a kind of action and intervention, causal intervention in the world that does have effects on other people, and they tend to theorize those effects in terms of, you know, hurt feelings right. or causing offense to people right. or causing them distress or discomfort right. or offense or things like that. And there, there's a way, you know, cycling back to your concerns about that, that, that way of, talking about the effects of derogatory speech, I think, doesn't fully characterize its effects within a democratic political context. I mean, um, I think your your NYU colleague Jeremy Waldron has written, interestingly, about yes. He's the a, harm he, and hate speech. I have a podcast with him, I exactly, yes. Yeah. Right, so he says yes, this the speech issues. which demeans
0: people and right. degrades them and actually has, you know, we have a historical knowledge that this speech has certain effects. And then he says something where let's say, in the context of specific spaces, let's say, workplace or yes. university, it actually impedes, for example, participa- participation on full, on equal terms. Right. So then he takes it from this kind of, yeah. this, let's say, not just emotional harm, but actually it's demeaning, integrating, and touches on what he calls dignity, which yeah. is not a legal concept, more philosophical. In our, in our kind of shows prudence. And then he says, but that creates unequal conditions. Yes. If you are continually subjected right. to being called names, etc., or to mm-hmm. be subjected to derogatory language, which yeah. you know is targeted specifically at you as a member of a minority group, he says that has an impact on the equality clause, on the equality guarantees. Yeah. And what's interesting, Can you ma- is what you're saying is this transition maybe doesn't quite capture all of the dimensions. I think it's one argument that's out there yeah. that people have made. Mm-hmm. And then the other arguments. Yeah. And the, yeah. the great thing, I think, about the students is, you know, you're going to have 7,500 students, hopefully 7,500 right. opinions. They're not going to have one opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: They're going to have strong opinions, though. They're
1: going to have strong <laughs> opinions, that's right, yeah. But, I mean, to come back to Waldron, I am sympathetic to his point that, you know, there is a specific kind of harm associated with hate speech and invective that I, I think is particularly significant because of its effects on excluding and denying the equal standing of members of complicated modern communities. Yeah, you know, we come back to the. We didn't emphasize that issue or issues about offense or other forms of right. harm that speech could create in, in, in its listeners in, in the report of the Free Speech Commission. You know, it was a commission that was constituted by the Chancellor in the wake of the events on the Berkeley campus last fall and the preceding winter that mostly involved the these kind of conservative performance artists, Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter. There was an abortive appearance attempt by Milo to speak on campus right. in I think it was the winter of 2017 that resulted in riots that were mostly provoked by off not by Berkeley students but right. by off campus agitators and then Milo announced an, uh, a return to the campus last fall and the chancellor thought it was particularly important to just make sure that the event could go forward without disruption and it did go forward sort of without disruption it you know it kind of petered out because it turned out to be just a, a p- publicity stunt on Milo's part, but it cost the campus the security part of it cost the campus millions of dollars, four million dollars or something wow. and it costs uh, and, and it disrupted the campus massively, and this was all just to protect kind of Milo Yiannopoulos, who's not it's not obvious that he has anything interesting to say.
0: I was going to say you were going to say this yeah. was all just to protect the First Amendment yeah which your colleague Erwin Chemerinsky and Howard Gilman, who I'm also going to have on the podcast, have said, this is defending the First Amendment, which most people would say we did not spend $4 million to to defend anything this man stands for For or this woman stands for. We defended a principle. I think the question then is, and I had coffee this morning at the Mario Savio freedom of speech movement Mm -hmm. coffee shop on the Berkeley campus. These people are using a free speech rhetoric and mantle to advance an agenda that is really not in keeping with what Savio did, which was a freedom writer who was registering voters in the South in the early 1960s. They're advancing an agenda that has nothing to do with equality. I really think that's kind of a fair summary of their points of view. When you try to read a page of Ayn Coulter or (laughs) not that's not their agenda. But they're using this First Amendment argument. So in some ways, when the university is caught in this, defending an abstract principle, Yep. And it has to convince its students, we're defending this principle, but we have nothing to do with this message. We're actually really against mm-hmm. this message. In yeah. your report, you try to kind of strike a balance. Yes. How do you think the university can convince its members that we have an abstract principle here we support mm-hmm. at all cost, but at the same time, we really have very other values? Other values, which actually are what could be called in the language of inclusion, could be called the language of equality, language of respect, language of actually we respect the truth, we respect facts. These people, as you said, they cast aspersions on higher education, or they actually don't even believe in higher education. They want to disrupt the university.
1: In some sense, they're trying to discredit universities. That's right. So so the university
0: is inviting in someone who may actually want to discredit the power of the university to decide what merits debate. Yeah. So... That's a great kind of that. Yes. Actually, it could be called hypocritical. It yeah, <laughs> certainly know? could be, yeah, yeah. Not in your characterization, it wouldn't yes. be interesting if in yeah. these people are contradicting themselves. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. We don't really right. care about that. Right. But it doesn't matter when it affects other people, yeah. when they're dragging yeah. the university right. into it. so yeah. The university now is turned into something that's inconsistent yes. with itself. Yeah.
1: No, I think that's, I think that's what, what is, is interesting and challenging about these, these free speech Issues, you know, we're, we were operating uh, in, in a constraint where, you know, American jurisprudence sees of, uh, public universities as First Amendment zones. Right. You know, going back to regulating or prohibiting hate speech, I think that was just kind of a non-starter for our commission. Right. Even if philosophically not all of us are convinced that the First Amendment is the only way of implementing a a free speech regime in a liberal society. I spent a lot of time in Germany, and you come from Germany. You
0: know, or if we could say, you know, we have a very, very powerful um, tradition of dissent on the court. Yeah. So in some ways, one doesn't even have to go to Canada or Germany or France. Yeah. One could say there is a very robust yes. dissenting tradition yeah. on the court, yeah. and the court, you know, and Sullivan decides that his yeah. hey, speech will be regulated. It leaves other yeah. cases. Bohane is kind of left open. There are other yeah. cases about, you know, a, you know, group yeah. invective. So in some ways, one could say, America has always struggled with this. Yeah. The current interpretation of the First Amendment is the current interpretation. Yeah. If we were somewhere else, people would not say the First Amendment is the best thing we have. They would say this is the wrong interpretation of right. it. Right. So there's, I think that's what's changed in, the ye- in this mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. that now people are looking at it and saying, oh, there's a way to interpret the First Amendment in a very simplistic way. Right. Or... Yeah. I'm being dragged into a corner here that I didn't really mean to defend. Yeah, yeah. I'm an absolutist, but this yeah. is not what I thought absolutism right. means. Right. Yeah. Is, so
1: well, I, you know, I think there is scope to push back on the kind of absolutist interpretation of the First Amendment. Not not everyone would want to do that. Or when was a member of our commission, right. and he certainly wouldn't want to go in that direction. But you know, kind of from a pragmatic political standpoint, it's both the campus of the free speech movement, but it's also perceived as a very liberal place. If we do anything that's going to be perceived as weakening our commitment to the First Amendment and to You'll have the ACLU suing well, you right away. Exactly. And we'll, our friends uh, at the ACLU will
0: immediately take up I, the cause. I'm pawn. not sure
1: that's, that's, <laughs> that's really where we want to go in the contemporary debate. But one thing we, we thought we could make some recommendations toward would be to encourage members of our community just to be more thoughtful. I come back to the idea of a curated speech community, right. inviting speakers outside of the classroom to talk to people in Sproul Plaza or in, or in one of the student activity spaces or something like that, those, those are not classroom activities, but they're still taking place on our campus, and you know, it seems to me people should be, as members of our community, thoughtful about what kind of speech we want to sponsor within the confines of the campus as contributions to, to valuable debate within the universe, the larger university. Community.
0: And you were careful to say you recommending that student groups actually explain why they're inviting somebody without making that into a condition exactly, where someone yes. can overrule it yeah. and say you can't invite right.
1: them. See, I think this is the, uh, as far as the issues we were looking at are concerned, this was the kind of interesting note is that you know professors make decisions all the time about who gets invited to campus. And they, they have a lot of authority in doing that. And they're typically responsible about exercising that authority. They invite, we invite philosophers to give talks in our speak, you know, our um, colloquium series. And our students rely on us to exercise judgment and, you know, inviting reputable people who are going to have interesting things to contribute. The campus, in a sense, and this is a kind of extension of the, the results of the free speech movement, which, which was all about the ability of members of the community to engage in political speech on, on the campus, um, including students. And it's kind of an extension of that. Students, as insofar as they're members of registered organizations, are authorized by the campus to extend invitations to outsiders on behalf of the campus. And that has is, is really been the kind of node of controversy. The, the controversial speakers that we've had in recent years were officially sponsored by registered student organizations. And in some sense, I think we think it's important that our students should have mm-hmm. the authority and have some freedom to as an extension of their own political speech rights to invite outside people to come to campus to, to engage in debate. But I think they also have responsibilities as members of a community in extending those invitations to, to select people who have something to say that's going to be a constructive contribution to debate within an intellectual community. And they should give some thought about how they want to sponsor these events consistently with our principles of community.
0: How do you think this the fact that this has gotten so expensive yeah. is shaping this? Because in some ways, when I think about that, that the cost can escalate to millions yeah. of dollars, I think it's not good for a public university to spend its money on there. You could yeah. have $700,000, you could have 52 yeah. students from the Bay Area attend Berkeley for of a course, year on those yes. scholarships, I looked it yeah. up. So that's actually a lot of students who would really benefit, probably, Absolutely, you would think. Yeah. And the university, in all of its materials, has this kind of value to say we want to make this education available to as many people who are qualified as we can. But in some ways, I think the money really muddies this conversation, not in in the best way, because then people are suddenly saying, why are you spending this money on behalf of a principal? But Mm -hmm. you have other principles. It doesn't help, I think, actually, in a way. I actually think maybe it's a way for the public to become aware of it because money talks Mm -hmm. louder Mm -hmm. than other things, maybe. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, it's a very difficult issue about how to manage. I think everyone on the commission thought it was ridiculous that we had to spend that much money.
0: And this um, seemed to be an unresolved issue, a little bit from the report. It Seems was, people yeah. were not totally clear what to make or how, what kind of recommendation to issue yeah. here. They yeah. so we apply to the university, right. of, apply to the governor—I don't know, of California yeah. or the state—or
1: <laughs> well, it, it's a—it's a tricky thing. I mean, I, I think no one in the commission thought that it would be unreasonable to set a limit, an annual limit, on what the campus is willing to spend to defend the First Amendment, right, as it were. You know, given that resources are limited, and right. as you say, there are many other valuable purposes that. And, that,
0: that and people would say, just, people would say, defend the First Amendment with the exemptions that are in place. Yeah. Because no one could come here and defame people. Yeah. Could spread low-value speech. Right. Promote child pornography. Yeah. Obscenity. All sorts of things are regulated. Everybody knows they're regulated, but no one has a problem. So in some ways, these extreme examples are useful. No one would say you could spend $700,000 to bring a child pornographer to campus. There are very few people in the country who would really say my absolutism goes this far. They say I recognize there's some need to regulate. But so after this, so you you spend a lot of time with members of the community listening to what their Mm -hmm. perceptions were. How do you see this in the larger context of we live in a different country than we did 5 years ago and then we yeah. did you know in 1964 so in some sure. ways i think obviously the berkeley controversies resonate mm-hmm. with the political yes. culture of our country yeah and every single time there's something yep. that ignites into a kind of not just because of yep. social media but because right. of the, well, the more
1: immediate um, political environment yeah it's interesting. Yeah, I think there are a couple of aspects of that that I, I would highlight. You know, I think one just is the f- the fact that you know universities are, in a some some sense, under attack. There's a kind of orchestrated campaign to discredit them in the public eye. There's a kind of facile narrative about them as being communities of
0: intolerance, elitism, and, uh, and elitism. expertise is elitist. That's right. That I knowledge is right. actually a group of a bunch of right. detached ivy yep. ivory tower, right. you know, liberals. Who are yeah. lording it over the rest of the country? There's I a kind of attack on, yeah. and that is a, it's, That's Is there any truth to that? That there's a kind of intolerance in universities. Well,
1: I was going <laughs> to say the other aspect of it is I think that and um, is uh, a sense that that universities and places like Berkeley in particular, NYU is probably not much different, are not particularly hospitable to conservative. Um,
0: yeah, in terms of numerically, probably thought. not, right? Yeah. You know, I'm but sure we have generally tend to have more liberal leaning faculty and liberal leaning yeah. students. A, a big question is is that because liberals go into academia, or yeah. because people who study a lot tend to become liberal? Yeah. I, I can't answer yeah. that question. You right.
1: Know? I mean, but but I, it, you know, some of the exchanges I had with conservatives, there was a kind of a back and forth I had with Meekan Mcardle, who wrote a blog mm-hmm. po- blog post about our. Our commission's report, and it was it was kind of interesting to me because uh, as we went back and forth, she was very critical of the report, but she actually didn't criticize any of our recommendations because, in fact, there was nothing mm-hmm. to criticize. We basically were vigorously defending the rights of conservative and other student groups to invite anyone they want and the responsibility of the campus to defend the First Amendment. Um, uh, but she objected to the tone. We started out the report by criticizing Milo and Ann Coulter and... As I went back and forth with her about it, increasingly it it became clear to me that what she objected to was that we weren't being, as a commission, sufficiently respectful of, uh, as she thought of uh, of it, the sensibilities and the the viewpoint of conservative members of our community. And she actually, you know, she 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 actually, um, you know, accused us of. Uh, committing microaggressions, I thought this was kind of hilarious uh, against conservative members of the community. Given,
0: I mean, this is actually I think this is where we are now, political culture that a term will be used against its intended, yeah, you know, uh, purpose within yeah. minutes. Yeah. that now you know the greatest snowflakes right. are found on the right. Yes, it is true. instantly microaggression if you actually yeah. call somebody out. If you actually right. say we don't respect someone's point of view, it's intolerant. You're yeah. not respecting the First Amendment, and you think how do we get out of this kind yeah. of Complete seesaw right. of I have as soon as you criticize me, I'm going to turn this against you. Yeah. So, so it's interesting yes. that you got sort of criticized for saying you're being you're intolerant and. Yeah,
1: I mean, and, I think what we were doing <laughs> in the in the report, we were defending the free speech rights of our students, but we were going to exercise our own free speech rights to cr- criticize, you know, some of the decisions to invite Ann Coulter or Milo Yiannopoulos to campus as as not very responsible on the part of our students because they don't have anything valuable to say. Um, and not,
0: you think as university faculty and students and members of the community, it is your right to say what is valuable Absolutely. I think Actually, that's,
1: that's part... That's, I come back to this issue of the curated speech environment. And right. rather than thinking in terms of harm necessarily or, right. or offense, I, I think we should think more about the value of speech within a university context. And, you know, our students are have tremendous authority invested in them to invite outsiders to come to campus. Wait,
0: is, if you but they
1: should be making judgments for themselves about, you know, what people are going to be able to, to say something to right. members of campus that will be a valuable contribution.
0: And I presume you've been chair of a philosophy department. If yes. you'd hired somebody and they're really unqualified, truly unqualified, yeah. you actually could not, you would not get support and you should actually not be able to run a department if you hire yeah. and appoint right. teachers who are not qualified, yeah. which would be low-value speech. It yeah. would be speech. Right. Some people would even consider it maybe very important, yes. conspiracy theories, who knows what, yeah. you, know, it's, yeah. you know. But... In some ways, the category of that it has a value, yep. the, our legal system recognizes low-value speech in a right. very specific way. Sure. It's very narrow, It really yeah. it's very, very narrow, but it does exist, and there's yeah. speech that has no value. Yeah. Universities, actually, the entire business is yeah. to is say to, speech has value. That's what I'm saying, yes. And some speech has more value than others.
1: Right. And, <laughs> and we want, we, we want you know, robust contributions from a massively wide range of perspectives, but that should be genuine contributions to debate and discussion on campus. How did
0: your debate end up with this um, blogger where you sort of, you're you engaging and you're, you're not tolerant enough of conservative students? And I, I see what what the point is to say, very liberal universities, maybe those students don't feel they get a lot of hearing. They can sit on Sproul Plaza, can stand there. Yeah, but you know, well, they're definitely
1: there. in the minority. And I, and, I, and um, that
0: seems to be um, a really difficult experience for yes. them, yeah. which is the experience of many people in this country all yeah. the time, yeah. so in some ways Yes. There's something to me when they right. become very vocal, say, we are the minority yeah. here. And you say, I can tell you who the minorities yeah. are in many, many other ways in yes. every university in America. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting that this experience yeah. of being a minority yeah. results immediately in a complaint, yeah. in a kind of outraged complaint, you're treating me unfairly. Right. And, you and, I, s-
1: and I think it's a real problem. And I th- in some sense, I, I think a lot of the, the conservative complaints about the modern university are... You know, people talk about you know conservative identity politics, but, but but you know they're they're not represented significantly in the in the context right. of the contemporary university. i you know I think this is a complex problem. I don't think it's because of prejudice just on the part of modern academia. I do think the Republican Party, as it's moved more and more into an extreme direction, has maneuvered itself outside of the just the extent to which it's hitched its wagon to the climate change denialism. You know, there are vast spectrum uh, parts of our campus and the engineering faculty and the natural science sciences faculty, you know, the engineering faculty is filled with entrepreneurs who start up their own companies. They're not hostile to, you know, they're not wild-eyed leftists who are ho- hostile right. to, you know, capitalism. A lot of them, I think, are kind of natural kind of centrists who would, you know, probably align with um, the Republican Party in a different era. But you know, if you're an academic in the contemporary world and the Republican Party is denying right. the human contribution to climate change, y- you know you've, you've become you've kind of maneuvered yourself outside of the domain of kind of scholarly, fact-based discourse. and
0: It's quite interesting that you, that you bring that in because I think the discussion about how the university establishes value and speech hasn't involved the natural sciences quite as much. Yeah. And there's been the march on science and there's been some questions yeah. of whether the president has appointed a science advisor or not, which yeah. he hasn't. And sort of that scientists I think he did recently. D- 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 very recently. Like yeah, it's actually two, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, just a couple but, weeks, but there yeah. was there's not a connection made between inviting a very incendiary conservative political speaker who promotes all sorts of nonsense yeah. about, you know, racial groups. Yeah. But inviting somebody who denies obvious science in some ways that wouldn't really fly necessarily, right. but they don't see a connection there. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier—that there's a kind of deep suspicion of the university—I yeah. think that is the underlying theme of these speech debates. I actually yeah, don't I think, think the speech right. debates are about a bunch of eighteen-year-old sensitive snowflakes. No. I actually think no, I don't think they are. No, it's about the authority of people mm-hmm. to decide that some things are actually established and settled, yeah. and we have to operate on that assumption. Yeah. We can't just reinvest and open that debate up.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's that certainly. Kind of undercurrent to these debates that's very important. But anyway, you know, the, a single campus can only do so much in the broader How cultural. How do you context. think this
0: is going to play out? Do you, do you anticipate that uh, you know, sort of this, the commission's report for the University of California may become a standard for some other universities? You said in this report, and I was very intrigued. You said the chancellor, or you know, whoever the provost or president of a campus should, would be, should probably choose to articulate the university's value when someone comes who really yeah. disagrees with those values. This, to me, is a very important part of the kind of free yes. speech absolutism. If you believe absolutely in the First Amendment, then you should make sure you don't get confused with defending the speaker's point yes. of view. Yes. And I actually thought at that point you would have pushed a little more and said, mm-hmm. if the university has an extremist on campus, the university should actually say something else, not just as a choice, maybe we'll Mm -hmm. really disagree with it, but actually to convince its students to say, we're not doing this actually to demean you. Yeah. We're doing this to respect the law. Yeah. And this this is it's this is a kind of more philosophical line than a legal line.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well I think that's in the spirit of our recommendations. We they were that the campus should when, you know, if if one of our student groups does invite someone who who really whose whole shtick is just to insult and demean people, should engage you know organize vigorous counter programming you know denounce the invitation, criticize the speakers the, the the student groups as a way of answering their 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 own attempts to defend the the invitation, but and to and to try to do this in a kind of empowering way, not in a way that will
0: mm-hmm.
1: will treat members of our community as hugely vulnerable people who need to be protected. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't think that does them a service. They're gonna have to go out into a broader world where it's, it's tough out there, and there's right. a lot of invective and right. um, derogatory speech. And again, we come back to the online context.
0: Um, Which is uh, interesting that, in, uh, that they're fully aware of it because they live in the world. Yeah. It's not like they it's never, very, they've never been sheltered world. and suddenly yeah. they're gonna be let out when they graduate right. and walk out of sprawl plaza, and yeah. suddenly there's the real world. The real world is very much here. Yeah. The question is whether the university is a better version of the real world, a kind of model for society, how to operate, or whether it's supposed to be this intensified metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, We actually have more ideas than in the public park. And I have a struggle with this because a lot of people say, no, 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 you're in the university, you should have more ideas, and I actually think... No, we have fewer ideas we talk about. We don't talk about any... I don't go online and just Google Spinoza and read the first... We don't spend
1: time talking about conspiracy theories that have no basis in fact or evidence. And a lot of people do. Yeah, a lot of people do. So, yeah, again, I come back to the curated speech zone. I mean, what's the point of a university, a physical space where people come together to engage in, um, you know, real-time discourse discourse and debate with each other if, if there aren't ground rules that ensure that it's going to... To, to be constructive valuable debate that you know um, where people have an opportunity to to respond thoughtfully to things I mean, other people you spend
0: a lot of last year sort of on this commission and really you know trying to think through what are the issues for a very very large and yeah. diverse community this is a hard question do you think ultimately Berkeley is better for it for having gone through this or if you could sort of roll back time and say, no, actually, they didn't decide to come to Berkeley. They obviously came to capitalize on the free speech movement. They wanted to come to a place where free speech really mattered. They didn't choose mm-hmm. other universities. so there's symbolic victories to speak here. Yeah, It's already a victory to speak here, no matter what you said, no matter how you much you were shouted mm-hmm. down. As soon as you spoke at Berkeley, you legitimated in a certain way. They know that. But if you said they didn't come, nothing happened last year, we went through a regular academic year, would you think the university would be better off the same... You know, it's, we live that's in a a, question we're yeah. teachers, so we yeah. think everything is a teachable right. moment, but yeah. I think sometimes also yep. in teaching something fails, and sometimes yeah. you think this didn't go well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it was very fraught in some sense, but but I think that's just something that goes with being such a prominent university that is associated with the, the, um, the free speech movement mm-hmm. in the contemporary political environment. Uh, we are going to be a, a lightning rod, and a, we're going to attract controversy. That makes the place interesting in some ways. I don't think Milo's free speech week, it was just a publicity stunt, in fact, if you want my opinion about mm-hmm. it. that was, he was His reputation as a free speech warrior had been discredited after it emerged. that he Which is been.
0: also really interesting because the tolerance of his support group yeah. has a direct limit. He had yeah. hit a wall and then something was revealed and boom, they dropped him. Yeah, so in they some dropped ways all of like this a, great tolerance for all these right. opinions no, is completely... It w- it was com- to it was to use your word... Seems hypocritical to me to advance somebody, you know, where you can say anything as offensive and viral and and horrible as we can imagine, but then he says another thing and suddenly he's dropped. Right. For something he said. Yes. So that was hilarious. (laughs) Speech tolerance is completely out the window as soon as you cross a line in another way. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I think that's right. And that was the background and he was trying to rehabilitate his career by getting some free publicity and coming to Berkeley again. You know the event had no value. It was mm. unserious of the students right. to invite him. They they couldn't articulate a, a rationale for inviting him apart from invoking the First Amendment, which which you know it doesn't isn't a isn't a reason to invite someone. It's a right. Exactly. It's, a, it's, a it's also a responsibility, responsibility not to
0: abuse it. Maybe, exactly. Right. Yes. Right.
1: So the event itself wasn't uh, wasn't valuable, and the con- you know and it was very disruptive for the campus. There was a massive police pr- presence. It was. It was scary, it was hard you couldn't walk across Sproul Plaza. It was and so those parts of it were not valuable. Having you know, having said that we went through it and, and it had did provoke you know you know, you you treat things as you said like teachable moments at a university. Right. And, you know, our commission was part of a set of discussions that were set in motion by those events that I think have helped us to become more reflective about what a healthy free speech regime looks like on the campus and to be a little more articulate about the special responsibilities that students have as members of groups when they're extending invitations. I'd you know, i I'd, I'd like to see how it would work to implement the recommendation that students can... Basically, students' groups are free to invite whomever they want, but they owe the rest of us an explanation of why they're inviting particularly controversial speakers and an account of how they're going to sponsor the events right. consistently with principles of community and our commitment to an inclusive... Egalitarian community. Um, you know, we're not, as you said, we're not going to vet those invitations based on their statements. But I think the the very exercise of giving an account of yourself to the rest of the community might impose some discipline and lead to a modest elevation in the in the quality of the discourse.
0: Can okay. you, what you're expecting, is the members of the community to have a sense of responsibility? that is not just a matter of sort of treating people with kid gloves and saying, yeah. you know, we're going to offend you, we can't do that, but to actually say what you're doing is so massively disruptive for the purpose of the university that it doesn't, that no matter how much you want to provoke people just to think about something else, this doesn't, this doesn't outweigh yeah. the, the kind of put, the disruption to what we're trying to do here.
1: Well, I think the fact that speech might provoke disruption, especially if the disruption comes from off-campus uh, forces, you know, that that was what it was about. It wasn't. I don't think anyone was worried that our students were going to riot when Milo um, right. was on campus. But there's these Antifa,
0: right,
1: black bloc prote- protesters and so on. But you know, the the fact that there might be some anarchist forces who will be disruptive if you invite someone to campus is not a reason not to support the invitation. But if we're going to invite someone who's potentially going to cause disruption, you no, know, it should be someone. Who has a place in a university community, that is to say, who isn't going to just get up there and insult people. Right. Who's going to engage in discourse that is thoughtful, is meant to provoke. is debate or something. And is debate geared to exchange and dialogue. And
0: to go back to where I started that you're just enrolling 7,500 yeah. roughly new freshmen. Yeah. And I actually think what I found really interesting and kind of touching and important and powerful how much people care about this generation and what they hear yeah. and what they think—it yeah. is not irrelevant. And yeah. in a funny way, when you said earlier, the university is kind of under attack, and there's a lot of disparagement of the university as you know yeah. a kind of institution that shouldn't be trusted, too yeah. liberal. At the same time, people care incredibly much, yes. which is also, I think, a bit of a startling realization mm. for people in, yeah. you know, no offense intended, but in humanities departments or something mm. who we think are. Pretty much utterly irrelevant, and suddenly society mm-hmm. is obsessed with who <laughs> care who teaches, yeah. you know, history one hundred and one, right. or what's on the syllabus of an English department, yes. you know, introductory seminar in the second yeah. semester. And you think, what is at stake is actually what what value society has, what the next generation is going to believe. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is also that there is a battle for this next generation. Mm-hmm. In your in your report, you kind of cite the sort of opinion polls of what the students think, and I think it's quite interesting that actually yeah. that the students cannot just be given a kind of um, boilerplate sentence. The First Amendment is good for you; it's always yeah. been good for you. Yeah. Which is, I think, the Mario Savio tradition. Say this yeah. was in in the best interests of our nation's yeah. highest principles. Yeah. And now they're saying, really?
1: Yeah.
0: You have these clowns coming, right. and they're defending our highest principles. It doesn't sound like that to me. Yeah. They're denigrating me, they're denigrating my friends, they're actually mm-hmm. racist, you know, misogynist, yeah. You know, these mm-hmm. people are not what we want to uphold. Right. So I think this is actually a debate about a generation's yeah. values yeah. much deeper than mm-hmm. they have no tolerance or something. This is about yeah. what our country is committed to, really.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really important part of the background. And I do think the universities should be locations for robust debate across a wide, you know, spectrum of ideological and political views. Um, another of our recommendations is that the the campus should should sponsor, you know, high-profile right. events that bring in. And there have been some of these events, you know, high-profile conservatives. Yeah, you walk
0: through the hallway. You have posters. You have sort of across the aisle, yeah. like from yeah. you know, two sides of the political spectrum. But these are respectable people. Yeah, invite well, people well, that's the very thing conservative is, speakers with yeah. very liberal speakers to yeah. debate. Yeah,
1: that's right. But uh, but that's fine. I mean, that's the kind of debate we want. We don't want conservative. You know, self-promoting. Performance right. artists.
0: To I think this is what people have said to me a lot of times, So, who are you to draw the line to call somebody a performance yeah. artist and somebody else respectable? And you say, well, that's my profession. Yeah. That's why I'm well, training and that's and, what and I my, do. And <laughs> our
1: judgments about these things are, are fallible, as everyone's are. Right. So, I, again, that's why we're, we're not calling for the university to set up a tribunal that will decide whether an invited speaker right, right, right. is really going to contribute valuable speech if they're invited to campus. We're, we're just calling on people to start to be reflective about the, the kinds of value of the speech that they're trying to
0: promote and sponsor on campus, right.
1: and to give an account of themselves, right. to engage in a kind of meta discussion about, not just about-
0: uh, And to the best of their abilities. Yeah, to them. their best of their abilities. So they're it's learning, so, so they can explore t- things. T-
1: tell us why you're inviting Milo, if you right. insist that he's imp- it's important to bring him to campus. And, and it's, not an, it's not gonna be an adequate justification to just cite the First Amendment. Right. Right. what is his life experience that makes him an important perspective you know i think this is a further aspect of the culture the broader culture that has to do with the trajectory of the republican party Is my that's my own personal di- diagnosis right. that that makes this a little bit difficult because the, so many contemporary conservatives are not really in, interested in good faith debate they're interested in trolling the liberals, basically, and the student, you know, conservative I think it's
0: a large debate we have in this country right now is, you know, when they go low, you know, Michelle Obama recommended we go high. She spoke from a very specific position of who she is and how she's been trolled for eight years straight. And so in some ways, I think she wasn't saying it as a kind of abstraction. Everybody should. And what you're saying is, well, if they keep on going low, your high ground doesn't really register because actually what plays on the internet is sensationalism, you know, yeah. sharp rebuttals, very quick. Yeah. So in some ways we can see that right now. So yeah. th- this discourse. Right. I want to thank you for taking the time. If I can borrow t- the title from your book, this is The View From Here, which is <laughs> which I actually okay. love as a title because okay. I know The View From Nowhere, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> of yeah, yeah. course, <laughs> one of my yeah. colleagues. Um, yeah. The View From Here, which is the University of California campus at Berkeley. So yeah. Uh, Professor Wallace, really thank you for taking the time and sort of walking me through some of the things yeah. that have occupied your year. Uh, what are you teaching in the fall semester?
1: Uh, it's interesting you should mention that because my, my one course this fall is a workshop in the law school with Josh Cohen, who's a political philosopher, and our topic is free speech in the era of social media. Really? And it's it's kind of run loosely on the model of the NYU workshop for philosophy where we invite prominent Philosophers and legal theorists to campus every week to discuss work in progress on this issue.
0: So it's between law and philosophy, or kind of and political it's science. And those political are the the,
1: uh, the disciplines we have a we have an interesting lineup: Erwin Chemerinsky, Robert Post from uh, Yale Law School. Yes. We have uh, we have Tim Wu from Columbia, who's yes. very interestingly on and the attention merchants and, and several very distinguished philosophers: Sean Schulman, uh, Tim
0: Scanlon, Susan oh, Bryson. Wow. It's a good lineup. Okay, that's a great lineup. Um, yeah. And a,
1: yeah, it's directly on this issue. So the
0: issue isn't letting you go, actually. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I I thought it would be an interesting thing to, to, to follow yeah. up on. And uh, again, it's weirdly one of our further recommendations in the report is that there should be more,
0: you know, uh, yeah. curricular
1: activities on campus about free speech and its value and its meaning. And and um, I think Josh and I were both particularly interested in, in thinking about the pressures that are put on some of the conventional approaches to, to free speech in the United States by by social media
0: well, um, well you have a lot to talk about since the biggest platforms, hosting platforms, internet companies yes have suddenly discovered that they're private companies and they can do all exactly. sorts of things yeah. and no one yeah. can cry First Amendment and the Supreme right. Court is not going to turn and look at this right. and resolve this yeah and I think this the fact that this is even a realization yeah makes it very important you're teaching such a class yeah that people actually understand that yes what these differences are and the yeah. second thing is what is the power of these platforms and media companies, yeah. they've become the public forum, exactly, yeah. which used to be newspapers, publishing right. companies, and universities. Right.
1: Yep. Uh, That's actually right. Josh is affiliated with Berkeley now and uh, has a long distinguished academic career, but he's actually is um, employed now by Apple University, <laughs> <interesting>. <laughs> so, so he's got a, an inside perspective on this.
0: Well wow. so so if uh, I may I may contact you again and in a couple of months I'd love okay. to hear I'd love to hear what you discovered <laughs> maybe you have a solution for all of us. Well, I don't know
1: if I have a solution but it'll be a lot of fun to talk
0: about. Great. Okay. Well yeah. thank you again for yeah, joining well, me today. Yeah thank you. very much.
1: It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah. Okay.